Glad you're here today. Uh, my name is Blair. I do some of the teaching around here. And I want to raise an issue that I think is a major player in our culture right now. It's not new. In fact, I'm going to be able to take you to the text and I'm going to show you where this was happening in the life of a nation of people, which is kind of odd because I would evaluate this as a national problem for us. In fact, you don't have to look hard or long to find where people are discussing how this is playing out around our nation. But it's not just that it's a national problem. For Israel, the nation who was dealing with this, they never got on the right side of this issue. And it cost them a whole generation of people. And I have wondered, watching this play out, if that's the way it's going to go for us. Are we going to lose a whole generation of people to this or not? Now, why I'm excited is because it doesn't have to end like that. I'm going to be able to show you in the text where God, in his great goodness, tried to change the outcome. And I'm, I'm going to argue that I think God's great goodness is even more exaggerated for us. So that doesn't have to be the way this plays out. It doesn't have to be our story. But you're going to be faced with a question. It's just really just this simple. Will you trust the reality that you see, that you believe, that you think is real, or will you trust God's goodness more? That's where we're headed. Now, if, if you have your Bibles uh, or a cell phone app, that's awesome. Go to Numbers chapter 14, and then I'll catch up with you in just a minute. Okay, so find your way to Numbers 14. Let me give you a little background. Moses has led Israel out of Egypt through the desert. They're now standing on the edge of this land that God had promised them. It's good. So Moses commissions 12 spies, and they go into the land. And they're, they're seeing the exact same things. And when they come out of the land, two of the spies, they do this. Whoa! We need to go now! It's, good. it's exactly what God said it would be. Let's go! And 10, who saw the exact same thing, focused on the difficulties that they saw. They said the people, some of them were bigger than normal. They're like, they're huge. What about their fortified cities? They had, they had these big walls and gates, and, and, they, and they had large cities. So when you have a large city with protections, it means you can put up a, a pretty good defense. You probably have a large military. They looked at all of that, and the scripture says this. They gave a bad report. That is skewed truth. It's distorted and twisted, told in a way that backs an agenda that you have. Their agenda was, we don't want to go into the land. We think it's a bad idea. So they decided to tell the story in a way that would skew it. And here's what happens. This is recorded in verse 1 
of Numbers 14. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. Sorrow. Deep sorrow. Sense of anxiety. Maybe you could go so far as to say depression. I want to use a different word here in a little bit to describe what I think happens here. But, But their words land and they work. And they don't stop there. In fact, if you pay attention, there's about to be a process that unfolds in the Scriptures in the next few verses. And they're in a very particular order. And I would tell you, I have seen this in the lives of people so many times that I don't think the order is coincidental. So I I want you to pay attention to how this unfolds in their lives. Okay? They just ran in to a difficulty a situation where it's going to be tough and the dominoes start to fall. Here's the first one, verse 2. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Faced with a difficulty, a barrier, the, the things weren't working out the way that they had hoped or wanted to, they immediately moved to grumbling and complaining. Now, If you've ever held a job in your life, you've seen this before. You've seen this before because life doesn't go easy all the time. In fact, life comes with more challenges and difficulties and twists in the roads and things that you don't see coming. And when that happens at work, boy, talk about an eruption of grumbling and complaining. It just just explodes all over the place. It just becomes this common thing that people do. And it's not just at work. Because life is difficult everywhere. So this happens with families. This happens with sports teams. This happens in the church. In fact, this will happen anywhere life is hard. Which is to say, it happens everywhere. There's the opportunity for you to grumble and complain because life is hard. In fact, what I've noticed is that there are some people who believe that grumbling and complaining is their superpower. You know them, right? They have the ability to scope out a situation and find the one thing that's wrong that needs to be pointed out to everybody. And they're willing to discuss it at length with anybody who will listen. And here's what, I've, here's what I've discovered. It's risky business. It's actually dangerous. You're going to see why here in a little bit. But I have watched this unfold in people's lives before, and I've even watched people who didn't start the grumbling and complaining, but they so connected themselves with that that their hearts were sidetracked. How do you get sidetracked from grumbling and complaining? We're about to see. They say, this is the second part of verse 2, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. This, This is their solution 
I wish I had just died earlier, then I wouldn't have this problem. Whoa, <laughs> that's fantastic. Like, you just solved your problem. Do you, do you understand what just happened here was their perspective got twisted and changed, which is what grumbling and complaining does. It changes how you view things. And they come up with the idea that it would be better to be dead earlier than to be alive now. That's the thought. And it's just getting started. I'm telling you, this is just getting started. Their perspective changes, and then this happens in verse 3. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? I love a good why question. They get to the heart of a matter. This is not one of those. This is a false why question. There is nothing in there that's honest about that question. Let, let me give you... Let me give you an example of a silly false why question, okay? I, I know it's silly, but hang with me. Do I look good in this dress? Right? That's a question, but that is not an honest question. You cannot answer that question. You can answer the question, yes. You cannot answer that question, no. And you all know this, right? I, I've learned the hard way. This is how I handle this. I'm like, I don't think that dress is a very good color on you. Or I don't think that dress has got the right cut for you. I'm blaming the dress, man. I'm throwing that dress under the bus. I will be seen as wise in that situation. But if I look at her and say, no, you do not look good in that dress. Has anybody else done that before? Like, you just do it once. Once is enough. And you discover that what you just stepped into was a loaded trap question. I, I want you to understand, that's exactly what's happening here. Except the loaded trap question is aimed at God. Did God send them there to fall by the sword? Or did he send him there to live? How in the world does he ask this question? But I'm going to tell you right now, from, from what I have seen, when people experience a difficulty and a barrier to something that they really wanted to see happen, like there's a struggle ahead at work, in their family, at their sports team, at church. It doesn't matter where it's at. When they experience that struggle, it doesn't take long for God to end up in the crosshairs. I actually wrote a list of things that I think are false questions that get asked a lot by people that I talk with. They say this, why is God doing this to me? Why is God doing this to you? Why have you made the assumption that God is the author of what's unfolding in your life right now. Why? Because it's not going like they had planned. And God should be able to give me what I want and the way I want. They say, why hasn't God answered me? 
you know, there's a lot of ways to answer a question. Sometimes silence, sometimes no. And yet, people wrestle with this idea that they didn't get what they thought they would out of life. And they want to know what's up with God. Why didn't God help me? The the problem with all of these skewed questions is they're trying to lay blame on God. The reason this is not going well is because of something that you've done. And here's the tragedy. When you say, why hasn't God helped me? If God was attempting to guide you, which I think he is, would you trust him enough to let him guide you if you've already assigned the blame to him in the first place? This, this just undermines everything. These skewed, false questions really mess with stuff. And, and it, it gets worse because there's a progression and it ends with verse 4. Check this out. And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. (laughs) What are they doing? They just engaged their imaginations. They just tried to imagine their best possible future. They're imagining it right now. And what they don't realize is that their imagination has been tampered with. Their imagination has been undermined by grumbling and complaining that's changed their perspective. They've asked false questions about God. And they've come to this conclusion, believe it or not. In my imagination, it would be better for us to go back and be slaves. It would be better for us to go back to the place where they used to kill our kids. It would be better for us to go back to a place where we had a quota and worked seven days a week and didn't have a day of rest. It would be better that than this freedom and living in our own cities and our own land. That, that's where their imagination just took them. Let me say it as directly as I can. I believe what the nation of Israel just did was that they chose hopelessness. They chose it. I don't know if you've ever considered this or not before, but you actually have a lot of sway on the amount of hope or hopelessness that you will allow in your life. And I I say that looking at a a nation that is struggling with a level of hopelessness we haven't ever seen before. And yet, there's an opportunity because you could be choosing your way out of this. There's some opportunities. I I don't know if you understand this or not, but hope and hopelessness are closely related They use the exact same mechanisms, they just go in the opposite direction. And if you could understand that, you might have an opportunity to change the direction 
of your hope. Let me, let me just show you what hope is. The scriptures are going to talk about this all over the place, and there's a reason for it. This is Hebrews 11.1. It says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. How can you be confident in what you cannot see? Well, because you have this sense of hope, this belief that things could work out in a specific way or that maybe somebody is in more control of this than you are and they're worthy of your trust. And so you have a confidence in that. Or Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him. Did you know God was a God of hope? And He's trying to fill you. He says with joy and peace. Why? So that as you trust in Him, you'll be filled with that. Why do you need trust? Because you can't see the outcome. You don't know how this is going to turn out. You don't know where this is headed. And yet, there is a confidence, a trust that you have in God, who is a God of hope. And look, look, the second part of this verse, I love. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Did you understand that God wanted your life to be so full of hope it spills out of you? It gets on the people around you. There's so much of it, you don't need it all. Do you, do you understand that this God who is a God of hope wants that for your life? Or maybe this very famous verse in Jeremiah 29. By the way, I'm just going to read verse 11. If you want, you should go and read what's, what gets said after that. It's going to line up with the stuff that we're saying today. It's going to make a ton of sense. But Jeremiah 29, 11 says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope, and a future. You don't know the outcome. You don't know the direction. But I know what I have planned for you. I love that he attaches hope and a future. They're linked right here. They're connected. I told you that hope and hopelessness are related. Here's how. Both hope and hopelessness use the imagination to determine what you think will happen in the future. They both use it. Hope looks at a situation and says, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I can trust the one who does. And because I'm trusting the one who does, I can imagine a future where it's going to be okay. And then the other person, they imagine a reality that they've built from their complaining and their false questions and their skewed perspective. And their outcome that they imagine is tragic 
and it fills their minds. I, I don't know if you've ever seen this work before. I've seen it in a, um, I've seen it in a funny way. It makes me laugh every time it happens. I like action movies that have a bit of suspense in them. Like you have no idea what's going to happen. You're on the edge of your seat. My wife does not like these kind of movies, but on occasion she watches them with me. And to manage the suspense that she feels, it will not take long in a movie like this for her to say this line, that person's going to die. Now, there's no indication that that person is going to die. But she's trying to manage the suspense that she's feeling, so she's trying to prepare herself for the inevitable outcome, except the problem is every person in that movie she names as dead, and I'm like, honey, they all can't die. There'd be no movie. You've got to leave the door open. Somebody's got to stay alive here, right? But she's trying to manage it. What is she doing? She's trying to prepare herself for what she thinks could be the horrible outcome so that she can manage it. And she's doing this. By the way, I gave, I gave you a very funny scenario, but this is not funny because this is how this works out in real life. And I bet you've heard this. I wonder if you've said this. I'm thinking this way only because I'm being realistic. Are you? Do you know the outcome? Do you know for sure how this is going to play out? Do you have God's insight into this? Are you making that determination from a place of overflowing hope because that's what God's trying to do in your life. I would argue that you are not, you are not being realistic. You are choosing your reality and you are building a story based on that that directs your heart towards hopelessness. It's not about being realistic. You don't know. Now here, this is worth noting. When Israel does this, the way God responds is shocking. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 12, it says this, I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. What in the world? God just put all of his energy into freeing them, bringing them across a wilderness. And the language he's using here, let me show you this. This is going to be this is going to be eye-opening. The language he's using here is the same language he uses in Exodus chapter 9. This gets said, by the way, that was God to Moses about wanting to start over. I'll just wipe them all out. I'll fulfill Abram's promise through you, Moses. And this is said in verse 15 of Exodus 9. 
For by now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. This is God through Moses to Pharaoh. And if you go and look at the Hebrew and how it's structured, they're using the same words in the same pattern way. They're explained differently by how, they're, how other things around them come out. But God is using the same language with Israel that he used with Egypt. Why is God so upset about this choice that Israel's making? Well, I think I have some insight. Let me show you something that I think is, I think this is pretty interesting. Um, the plagues haven't happened yet, but they're going to soon. And God reveals his heart behind the plagues of Egypt. This is Exodus 7, verse 5. He says this, And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. It wasn't to punish. It was an attempt to make sure that Egypt knew who God was. And so ten times he goes back to the well over and over again doing miraculous and incredible things that would have undercut every one of their gods that they put trust in. So that at some point along the path they could say, he's powerful, we know who this God is. Something interesting happens that's a similarity, it's a parallel. This is back in Numbers 14. Because God has determined that these people who just went through this process of blaming God and not trusting Him, they're not going to get to go into the promised land. It says that directly in verse 23. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised an oath to their ancestors. I made a promise to their ancestors, but you're not going to see this fulfilled. And in verse 22, he tells us why. They tested me ten times. <laughs> How many plagues were there? Ten. How many times did Israel get to see God's power put on display in Egypt before they left? Ten times. That had to shape the way you think about how powerful this God was. But in the wilderness, ten times, they tested God. And they should have been dealt with harshly. And God meets them with kindness and kindness and kindness and kindness all over again. Let me put up the list for you. The list of 10, this, is, this would be what scholars would say, look, these are obviously the plagues, but the scholars, there's, there's a wide agreement that these would be the 10 things that God did. Out of gracious kindness for them, you, you didn't give me enough food, I'm going to give you manna. You didn't give me the right food. You didn't give me water. You didn't give me this. I'm going to go worship a different idol. And over and over again, they could have been wiped out, and God saves them over and over and over again, rescuing them. 
Why? Why does he pile up these ten in light of those other ten? Because God wasn't asking them to use their imaginations in some vacuum. God had piled up goodness upon goodness in their lives. And if they would have just looked back just a little bit and they had rested their minds on the goodness of God that they had experience with, that they had history with, they could have imagined a different world. And God, who attempted to change the hearts of the Egyptians, after ten times realized there was something that was wrong with their hearts. They were never going to do this. And after ten times with this group of Israelites, out of frustration, said, I'm going to wait until you pass as a generation and I find a group of people whose hearts are inclined to trust me based on, look at our history. You should have crossed the Jordan with me. We, we could have done this together. You could have imagined a life. But instead, you complained, you altered your perspective, you started asking false questions, and you came up with a skewed view of reality that was so crazy that you decided to choose hopelessness and you held it tight. And you held it so tight, you couldn't trust me with your future. See, both of these, both hope and hopelessness, use your imagination. They use their imagination to conjure up a reality where living as a slave in Israel was a better idea than trusting God. And they had a slew of good things that they could have rested their minds on that would have led them to an imagination where their future could have been good and filled with hope. So why didn't that happen? You saw the list of good things that God did. I would argue that you and I, my friends, have more reason to be filled with hope than they did because we have come after Jesus. Where Jesus came to the earth, set an example for us, sacrificed his life. Why? So that your life could be full of of hope. And what more do you need? What more evidence do you need? What do you need to see? Somebody else to die? He sent his son who sacrificed for you so that you could live differently, think differently, be different. With the desire that you would have so much hope that you would be a walking billboard for Jesus. That's our opportunity. And yet, it appears to me 
that this tragedy of hopelessness is just as widespread in the church as it is outside. I just think it's hard. It's hard when you get worn down. It's hard when you go to the point of exhaustion to fulfill that dream or to get through that barrier and you're not sure it's going to work. It's hard when your life starts to fill with fear over that situation where you have doubt about your capacity to actually pull something off. God gave you a role and you don't even know if you can fulfill that role. And over time, it starts to wear on you because things aren't going as smoothly as you thought. And if you're not careful, you go down the path of grumbling. You go down the path of blaming God. And pretty soon, your reality is the only reality that you can see. And this goodness of God that was meant to overwhelm your life has faded and disappeared. But here's the truth. You get to choose which story to trust. You get to look at the history. You get to look at your experiences. You get to look at the faithfulness of God in your life on a regular basis. And you get to ask, should I trust my version of reality more than I trust the goodness of God? Because you can choose hope. It's about resting your thought and your mind and your trust on the one who's worthy of it. Hopelessness doesn't have to be the way we live. In fact, it is not what God intended you for. He wants you to be that walking billboard of spillover hope. Why? Because you're responding to his goodness and his greatness. I've asked the band uh, to play this song that's going to help you recall the goodness of God, this great name of Jesus and what he did for us. Halfway through, they're going to give you a chance to stand and respond with them, and I hope you will. I hope you'll sing with some energy that fills your heart with a sense of gratefulness for the goodness that God has given in your life and that it changes your perspective and fills you with hope.